Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Tonight, we are going to delve into the deep past and spend an evening with dinosaurs. Sometimes you just want to have that Zen moment where you just talk about things that have been extinct for millions of years and have absolutely no connection to anything that's going on in the real world. <laughs> um, though I will caution, uh, and I will bring it up again, that there are a couple of stories that are going to be about predation and things like that. So uh, maybe not uh, for the most squeamish of you. Uh, I do apologize if that puts you off. But let's start with how we know what colors dinosaurs were. We used to think that all dinosaurs looked like lizards with rough skin that was mostly browns and grays. Um, if you think of some of the really old portraits of dinosaurs, I think of the murals in the uh, Yale Peabody that I've actually seen uh, years ago. And all of those dinosaurs are very uh, green and gray and brown and uh, definitely not what we think of dinosaurs looking like today. And of course, none of them had feathers. But now we know that many dinosaurs featured feathers in bright colors and patterns, and even those without feathers sported a range of colorations. One of the pioneers of this knowledge is Jakob Winther, an associate professor in macroevolution at the University of Bristol in England. Uh, and Bristol will come up again. Apparently, they're doing a lot of good uh, work on dinosaurs over there. Um, so, which isn't surprising because Bristol is well known as a place where, um, dinosaur and other fossils have been found. So, uh, it's kind of died in the wool there a bit. <laughs> the first dinosaur feathers were discovered in 1996. And with this discovery, researchers noticed round microscopic structures within the fossils. Many assumed that these structures were fossilized bacteria. Vinther, though, had experience with, uh, with another creature that made him curious. I was looking at fossilized Incan squid and octopus-like ancestors, Vinther told Live Science. It was remarkably well-preserved. You can take ink from a squid you bought down at the fishmonger and put it under an electron microscope, and you see perfect little round balls, Vinther said. And then when you take fossilized ink, it looks exactly the same. Perfect little round balls. Those balls are melanosomes, melanin-containing spheres that are the pigment responsible for most color in the animal kingdom. Hair, skin, feathers, and eyes are all colored by melanin and melanosomes. And of course, melanosomes are also the way in which octopus are able to do and other 
uh, cephalopods are able to do the magic tricks with their coloration. So they actually are able to control melanosomes on their skin that they can open and close in different, uh, different kinds of melanosomes in order to create the uh, amazing patterns that they are able to create. Now, it had long been thought that melanin wouldn't have survived the fossilization process. There's lots of things that we have believed wouldn't uh, survive the fossilization process, and luckily, we continue to be proven wrong. But it seems that they were, in this case, wrong, indeed. And knowing that, we can now uh, we can now know what colors the dinosaurs would have displayed. You see, melanosomes are different shapes depending on their coloration. If you look at a person with black hair or a bird with black feathers, those are sausage-shaped, Vinther said. Whereas if you're ginger, if you're a North American robin with a ginger chest, or you've got ginger hair like carrot top, they're shaped like little meatballs. So basically, you just look for sausages and meatballs, and then you can actually put colors on extinct animals, Vinther said. Big, fat melanosomes show gray or blue pigmentation, and long and skinny, flat or hollow, show that there would be iridescence. That's actually generated by ordering melanin in a specific way inside the feather in order to create structures that can interact with light, Vinther said. The shape of these melanosomes create structural color, like in uh, peacocks and other kinds of animals. Knowing how the melanosomes affect color, you can start to tell that some dinosaurs were actually quite flamboyant. Close relatives of velociraptors, uh, contrary to what you might have found uh, in a certain very famous movie, would have been covered in feathers and quite bird-like. And those feathers would have had a metallic sheen like hummingbirds or peacocks, notes Vinther. And some dinosaurs actually sported camouflage, which makes sense because it was a very dangerous world for a lot of dinosaurs. <laughs> um, dinosaurs definitely uh, had a lot of competition out there in the world for what they were uh, trying to do. A lot of carnivores out there trying to make an easy meal. <laughs> and so Vinther's first dinosaur uh, that he studied was a small bird-like dinosaur called Anchiornis, which Vinther's team concluded had a gray body, white wing feathers with black splotches at the tips, and a red crown, kind of like a modern woodpecker, which is really cool. Um, I have like three or four kinds of woodpeckers that come to my uh, front yard bird feeder, and it's lovely to think of them as the descendants of uh, dinosaurs in this way. Sinosauropteryx, the first dinosaur to be discovered with feathers, had a striped tail and a bandit mask, kind of like a raccoon. It also had countershading. This is a camouflage pattern 
where parts of the animal that are usually in shadow are lighter, while the parts exposed to regular sun will be darker. A good example of this is a white-tailed deer, so uh, darker on top with the sort of uh, taupe, uh, off-white underbelly. And so patterns of countershading can tell you about the animal's most likely habitat. Sinusoropteryx probably lived out in the open, while an animal with countershading that is more gradual and low on the body would suggest an animal that lives in a forest environment with more diffuse sun. It can also tell us about whether an animal was hunter or prey. Despite being a moving tank, the huge armored dinosaur, Borelapelta, Mark Michelli, clearly still had predators due to the countershading pattern on its skin. If you look at large animals today, they don't have any color patterns, like elephants and rhinos, Vinther said. And that's because nobody messes with them. So, based on the fact that this animal was covered in armor, even though it was covered in armor and really huge, it was countershaded, which tells us that Jurassic Park would have been scary, Vinther said. You're still vulnerable, even if you're that big and that armored. Another way that we know more about what dinosaurs would have looked like is that we've increasingly discovered fossils of soft tissue such as skin. And so when I say soft tissue, I don't mean the kind of soft tissue where, you know, you open up a rock and there's actual like pliable tissue, obviously. I'm talking about actual fossilized skin and things like that. Um, so I think that I definitely talked about, I hope that you've seen the pictures of, um, that really incredibly well-preserved, uh, dinosaur that was, um, some kind of Ankylosaurus, uh, adjacent animal with all sorts of like bony protuberances, but also skin. Um, and so a hundred percent fossilized, but also a hundred percent, uh, able to see those kinds of soft tissues. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we have increasingly discovered these soft tissues, which is super exciting because the bones can tell us a lot, but they can't tell us everything. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, interpretation in bones. And so, you know, I think that's one of the important things that we have to remember is that our ideas of dinosaurs are absolutely based in, uh, reality, absolutely based on, uh, you know, the bones we have, the soft tissue remains we found, but there is always interpretation there. And so the way that we think of dinosaurs, you know, is not a hundred percent what dinosaurs looked like absolutely without any kind of, um, interpretation. Uh, just think of how dinosaurs have evolved in the last hundred years, uh, from those really, uh, kind of, uh, frankly, derpy looking, uh, 
statues that were created for um, the Great Exposition in London uh, that you can still go and visit, in fact, but uh, they don't look anything like you would think a dinosaur looks today. Um, I mentioned already the Yale portrait where uh, most of the sauropods are uh, wading in water and are in, uh, you know, places like that. Um, and even Jurassic Park, uh, which we talked about uh, briefly or mentioned briefly, which has not a feather in sight uh, in its original incarnation. And so, we continue to find new and interesting uh, aspects of dinosaurs. And so I completely expect that our uh, interpretation of them will continue to evolve. Okay, that all that being said, I do want to uh, make a note here uh, that if you are squeamish, you might want to take caution as I will be talking about things like scavenging and decomposition. Um, and so, you know, nothing too graphic, I hope. Uh, but you know, some people don't really want to think about that kind of stuff. New research has expanded our understanding of how dinosaur mummies, quote unquote, formed in the ancient past. And so these are those dinosaurs that have, you know, remaining skin, remaining, um, structures of soft tissue. We used to think that any dinosaur that still exhibited skin or other signs of soft tissue that had been fossilized came from creatures that had been immediately buried by a landslide or flash flood or other natural process that would have immediately covered the carcass and prevented predators and microbes from scavenging the remains. However, recent examination of an Edmont Edmontosaurus mummy called Dakota has changed our understanding of how dinosaurs can mummify and suggests it may have been more common than previously believed. Now, Dakota is a hadrosaur or duck-billed dinosaur that died around 67 million years ago in what is now North Dakota. Unlike other mummified remains, Dakota was not immediately buried, but was scavenged by predators, including what were ancient crocodilians, but also could have included dinosaurs such as a, a Dionychosaur or even a juvenile Tyrannosaurus rex. And so uh, they found diagnostic teeth and claw marks on the tail and other parts of the dinosaur's remains. So we know, for instance, that they had uh, crocodilian uh, sort of gnawing on the bones, and bones are really easy to tell. Um, but there might have also been uh, other animals involved in the soft tissue damage. Co-lead author Stephanie Drumheller-Horton, a paleontologist at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, told Life Science that, unintuitively, if you have predators partially eating the remains, that can actually help the long-term stabilization of things like skin. Long enough to get it buried underground when those secondary chemical changes can happen. Dakota was discovered in 1999 in the famous Hell Creek Formation that dates to the late Cretaceous and early Paleogene. 
the fossil does not have a head or the tip of its tail and may also be missing its left forelimb. But otherwise, the skeleton is largely intact, explains Clint Boyd, co-lead author and senior paleontologist for the North Dakota Geological Survey. The skin itself is a very deep brown, almost brownish black, and it actually has a bit of a shine to it because it is so much iron in it, said Mindy Householder, a study co-author and a fossil preparator for the State Historical Society of North Dakota in Bismarck. It almost looks like it's glittering. While Dakota went on display in 2014, it wasn't until 2018 that the fossil preparators began to work on cleaning and freeing the skeleton from more of its rocky encasement. It was during this process that they found marks that looked suspiciously like bites. Study co-author Becky Barnes, a paleontologist and lab manager at the North Dakota Geological Survey, was the first to see the marks on the tail. Later, Householder found additional marks on the quote-unquote pinky finger of the right forelimb. Now, the team again notes that while bite marks on bone are quite easy to discern, bite marks on skin are trickier. The team found distinct crocodilian bite marks on the bones, but needed a better sense of what marks might look like on the skin to confirm their suspicions. To do this, the team turned to forensic studies of modern mammals and human bodies, though the latter is an imperfect comparison due to our much thinner skin. They found, quote, deep raking furrows and punctures on Dakota's tail, as well as a dozen puncture wounds on Dakota's right hand and forelimb, with some skin on the forelimb having been peeled back to access the flesh. All this suggests that the carcass remained unburied for some time after the animal's death. To figure out how an animal that had been exposed and scavenged could still mummify, they once again turned to modern analogs. Here they found a process called desiccation and deflation, which could account for the dinosaur carcass having remained unburied for weeks to even months while the normal processes of scavenging and decomposition decomposition would have taken place. However, if large holes were present in the skin, this would have allowed gases and fluids associated with decomposition to escape the carcass and thus to help it dry out and desiccate. This would have left the carcass with a, quote, deflated appearance with skin and associated dermal structures draped closely over the underlying bone, according to the study. The remains would have then been buried at a later time, allowing for the fossilization and preservation that followed. This is something that's actually fairly predictable in the forensic literature, Drumheller Horton said. It's just not something that had been looked at in the context of dinosaur mummies previously. Now, there are definitely mummies that form through rapid burial and others that may have formed by being submerged in deep anaerobic waters, but the researchers suggest that many may have formed after this deflation and desiccation process. Now, the next step for the project is to figure out exactly what chemical reactions enable dinosaur skin to fossilize in this way. The team hopes to look at other mummified specimens to get a wider picture, 
and they hope to work on another mystery. The majority of mummified specimens are hadrosaurs, and researchers aren't quite sure why. But if you're headed out to North Dakota, you can see the right forelimb, left foot, and tail of Dakota, which took fossil preparators 14,000 hours freeing from the rock's matrix that surrounded it. The rest of the fossil is expected to take several thousand more hours of work before they have completely freed it for everyone to marvel at. So just think about when you see dinosaur bones in uh, museums that you don't just pull them out of the ground like that and it, and are able to articulate them on a skeleton um, or on a, you know, as a skeleton. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing dinosaur bones for display. Um, so I thought that was really an interesting thing to note there. Okay, so we are actually going to continue to talk about preserved dino skin. Tess Gallagher, now a paleontologist and paleobiology graduate student at the University of Bristol, and her mother, Lisa Marshall, were part of a team excavating the so-called Mother's Day Quarry in Montana. Among the findings in this quarry are 15 individual Diplodocus juveniles from around 145 million years ago. Now, the two of them were excavating, uh, were working on excavating, and they excavated patches of skin from one of these specimens. Unfortunately, this was right before the pandemic hit. And prior to their discovery, the only skin from sauropods came from embryos and juveniles at other sites, as well as some foot pad um, impressions in trackways. Now, remember, I noted that the vast amount of preserved dino skin is from hadrosaurs, and these are uh, sauropods. After the discovery, Gallagher applied glue to the skin surface to help preserve it, a normal process in excavation to help prevent contact with air causing the fossils to become fragile. She and her colleagues then wrote a paper on the discovery and the six different types of scales they observed on the skin, four of them new to science. But when she and others were able to return to the site, more than a year later, again due to the pandemic, the skin had cracked and disintegrated, a result of the glue's interactions with the environment over such a long period. Gallagher uh, wrote that, I've never felt more defeated in my life. Oh, it sounds, I, I can only imagine. She then gathered a handful of scales found among the fragments to bring back with her to Union College as uh, quote-unquote mementos, she noted. But this actually turned into a second life for this story. After showing them to her then-advisor, Dr. Anouk Verheiden, he suggested she examine them under the microscope to see what she could find out. The results of that endeavor were the basis for a new discovery that Gallagher discussed at this year's annual meeting of the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology, or the SVP in Toronto. 
looking at approximately, looking at the approximately three millimeter scales, she was perplexed. Sauropod scales are often polygonal with protuberances called papillae, but these scales had a series of black dots, which she'd never seen before. I was so confused with these structures I was seeing, she explained, and I really wanted to figure out what was going on here. At first she thought they were papillae, but then she noticed this ring connecting to one of these black dots, which means they are not papillae, so what are they? After examining several of the scales, she found a pattern. The black dots are actually connecting to each other, she said. She realized that the black dots and connections were sediment filling in holes within the skin. The skin was porous. Noting, if you had a very open pore foam and filled it with the sediment, you wouldn't see the pores. Instead, you would only see the very tips of the strands that connect and make the pores poking out of the sand. So from the top, you would see a bunch of dots. This is how I visualize the black dots in the sediment within the skin. This led her to wonder how a up to 80 foot dinosaur would use porous skin. So she turned, as many have before her, to living animals and compared an Asian elephant to a similarly sized Edmontosaurus, again, a hadrosaur. Um, and so the calculations suggested that the Edmontosaurus would need help staying cool under extreme heat like an elephant. But this, Gallagher noted in her SVP presentation, begs the question, if a three-ton Edmontosaurus is having trouble exchanging heat out of its body, then what in the world is a 13 to 20-ton Diplodocus supposed to do? She's not yet sure, but she's working on it. She suspects it has to do with increasing surface area. Elephants do this by having wrinkly skin rather than porous skin, so she turned to engineering. Metal foam heat sinks are often used to increase heat exchange. Their porosity helps to lower the temperature of electronics. She wonders if the pores increase contact with air and therefore natural convection. But another cool thing has happened which should aid her in her research. More skin has been found at Mother's Day Quarry, and they think it might be due to the same mechanism that led to Dakota having preserved skin. The texture of bone changes when you leave it out in the hot sun for months, Gallagher explained, and you can see that in the Diplodocus bones, they were out there desiccating for a while. She further notes that we've really begun to understand differences in dinosaur skin. Now we're looking at scales and realizing they are not as simple as we thought, Gallagher asserted. We can't just take lizard skin and crocodile skin and copy paste it onto dinosaurs. They had scales that we don't even see today. And Dr. Michael Pittman, a paleobiologist and assistant professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, who was not involved in this study but has made similar discoveries, notes that dinosaur skin not only contributes to our understanding of their appearance and life, but it also tells us about their basic biology and ecology. For example, the type and distribution of scales can identify body regions 
that we're more or less protected in life and also more or less mobile in life. Preserved evidence of skin coloration and patterning can tell us about dinosaur ecology, e.g. if the dinosaur was camouflaged or had display structures. We are in a new era of fossil research, enabled by continued fossil discoveries and new technologies and approaches, Pittman continued. We can now look at skin in levels of details that were never thought that we never thought were possible, from finer external and internal anatomical details like tiny scale patterns and subcutaneous ligaments to the chemical remnants of the original skin and its pigment. This is allowing us to better understand what dinosaur skin was like, how it was used, and how it evolved through time. By example, for example, by studying dinosaur skin, we now know how feathers evolved and why birds have scaled feet. So that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. It is time to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will talk about how those giant sauropods managed to walk around without breaking all of their bones uh, due to their enormous weight. So please do come back for that or stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have 
our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are continuing to talk about dinosaurs tonight. And I personally love dinosaurs so much. I'm definitely one of those people who has been a giant dinosaur fan uh, since they were a small child, Uh, I never really was into dolls or anything like that. Um, I was definitely a dinosaur science nerd since I was a kid. Um, I did a whole uh, project on them in like fifth grade. uh, And uh, my favorite dinosaur has remained uh, since I was a little kid, uh, the Ankylosaurus. That is my favorite dinosaur. Um... I just, something always appealed about the kind of turtle-like uh, tank kind of a dinosaur to me. I don't know why. Uh, lots of other dinosaurs are fun. I like, uh, now that we know that dinosaurs could be, uh, you know, that there were theropod dinosaurs with with feathers later on, that's cool. But, uh, you know, uh, Stegosaurus is also good and Triceratops, you know, the the hits. <laughs> Um, but Ankylosaurus has always been my favorite. Anyways, let's not talk about, uh, sort of tank-like dinosaurs. We're going to talk about sauropods, which are, of course, the big guys. Researchers have finally figured out how sauropod dinosaurs were able to support their enormous weight on land. And, uh, we have over the years realized that these dinosaurs basically stuck to the land, uh, and early ideas, as I talked about a little bit, uh, of these behemoths were that they probably lived in and around water to help with their weight so that they would basically, uh, you know, float in or wade in water to kind of displace some of that giant weight. And so, uh, you will definitely see them in swamps and things like that in old illustrations. But by the mid-20th century, that theory had been disproved by finding tracks of sauropods in non-aquatic areas. It turns out that the crucial component for them being able to walk uh, was a soft tissue pad on their feet that helped to absorb their incredible weight. A University of Queensland and Monash University-led team used 3D modeling and engineering methods to digitally reconstruct and test various scenarios using 
foot bones from several sauropods. Dr. Andres Yanel headed the research during his time as a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland's Dinosaur Lab. Uh, another uh, definite dream job to work in a dinosaur lab. That would be so fun. Anyways, they found evidence for a soft pad beneath the heel that would have helped absorb the strain of their weight. And without such a pad, the bones would have been subject to uh, pretty catastrophic stress fractures. And basically, they wouldn't have been able to walk at all. We finally confirmed a long-suspected idea, and we provide, for the first time, biomechanical evidence that a soft tissue pad, particularly in their back feet, would have played a crucial role in reducing locomotor pressures and bone stresses. It is mind-blowing to imagine that these giant creatures could have been able to support their own weight on land, Dr. Yanel said. Now, these dinosaurs these enormous dinosaurs dominated the landscape of the earth for more than 100 million years. That is a sobering fact that I don't think humans comprehend very well. The amount of time dinosaurs ruled the earth is mind-blowing when you compare it to the time that humans have lived on the earth. And it often makes me wonder about our, you know, so-called intelligence and whether we can really be called a dominant species when we've barely been around for a fraction of a second in geologic time, and our prospects are not looking that good for the future. Uh, but I digress. Uh, Dr. Olga Penagiotopoulou, um, I am so sorry, I cannot pronounce Greek, and I am so sorry for Dr. Olga, um, of Monash University, notes that it has long been assumed that sauropods had feet like modern elephants. Popular culture, think Jurassic Park or Walking with Dinosaurs, often depicts these behemoths with almost cylindrical, thick, elephant-like feet, she said, but when it comes to their skeletal structure, elephants are actually tiptoed on all four feet, whereas sauropods have different foot configurations in their front and back feet. Sauropods' front feet are more columnar-like, while they present more wedge-high heels at the back, supported by a large, soft-tissue pad. Now, the two species have different structures because they're from two very different lineages, notes Steve Salisbury of the University of Queensland. Elephants belong to an ancient order of mammals called proboscideans which first appeared in Africa roughly 60 million years ago as small, nondescript herbivores, Associate Professor Salisbury said. In contrast, sauropods, whose ancestors first appeared 230 million years ago, are more closely related to birds. They were agile, two-legged herbivores, and it was only later in their evolution that they walked on all fours. Crucially, the transition to becoming the largest land animals to walk the earth seems to have involved the adaptation of a heel pad. Now, the team plans to use the 3D modeling and engineering methods to explore, to further explore both dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals. 
They hope to be able to model an entire limb, including muscles, which, uh, as we all know, are rarely fossilized. This should allow us to answer different questions about the biomechanics of extinct animals and better understand their environmental adaptations, movement, and lifestyles, writes Dr. Yanell. Okay, so that's pretty cool, figuring out how these giant animals were able to actually walk around, because, you know, that's definitely something that I have thought about in the past. Um, but now we are going to move from giant sauropods to small winged dinosaurs. Again, definitely uh, fun to think about how dinosaurs uh, evolved wings and eventually became uh, birds, at least the um, Ornithischian. Um, actually, no, uh, that is wrong. I always, <laughs> it's so funny. So there's two main groups and uh, we'll be talking about that in a second after this story. Um, of dinosaurs, uh, lizard-hipped and bird-hipped. And actually, the lineage that led to uh, birds comes from the lizard-hipped dinosaurs, not the bird-hipped dinosaurs, just to make things fun and exciting. Anyways, a recent discovery shows that a four-winged dinosaur, Microraptor jauinus, ate not only ancient birds, fish, and lizards, but also ancient mammals. It's the first time mammal remains have been found in a dinosaur's intestines. Now, this microraptor was a tree-dwelling dinosaur from the early Cretaceous, and it comes from a region in northeast China called the Jehobiota, which has given us a treasure trove of well-preserved fossils that have extended our knowledge of both dinosaur anatomy and the animal's different ecological niches. Now, microraptors would have been a glider who moved around the branches and ground in search of tasty meals. The specimen with the mammal's remains, uh, that being an intact foot, is actually the holotype, the first of its species to be discovered and named. It was first discovered in 2000 and has only recently been re-examined, which led to the remarkable find. And again, that's my favorite story is when something is re-examined after having sat in a museum somewhere and uh, we find out something new and exciting about it. I always love that. First discovered in, I'm oh, sorry, the researchers led by Hans Larsen, a paleontologist at McGill University, aren't sure which species the foot belongs to, but it adds to our knowledge of Microraptor as a generalist who preyed on any small species they could come across and catch or uh, scavenge. We can't really be sure right now which it was. Gut contents are amazing snapshots into the diet of fossil animals, but they are so rare that it can be difficult to figure out whether the preserved quote-unquote last meal represents the animal's normal diet or a weird one-off event that lucked into getting fossilized, notes Stephanie Drumheller-Horton, who worked on Dakota but was not involved in this study. Microraptor is shaping up to be a very interesting exception to that rule, with multiple beautifully fossilized specimens 
preserving different last meals, she added. Taken together, the authors make a compelling case that this little theropod wasn't a particularly picky eater, eating all sorts of small-bodied animals in its environment. And so, as noted, the identity of the species isn't known, but it resembles the morphologies of Sanadelphus, Yenaconodon, and Eomaya, all ancient species that looked like opossums or rodents. And so this specimen would have been around the size of a mouse and would most likely have been a ground dweller, giving evidence toward the idea that Microraptor may have swooped down to the forest floor for the occasional meal. The foot seems completely intact and thus was swallowed whole. How much of the mammal was swallowed is unknown, Larson said. However, there were several un other unidentified bones around the foot in the ribcage, so I suspect more of that mammal was consumed. And again, I do want to stress that it's important to note that it's clear, not clear whether the animal was hunted or scavenged, but hopefully the discovery of more specimens of Microraptor in the future will give us a bigger picture. So that is very exciting. Okay. So now let us talk about new research into the earliest dinosaurs that suggests that they were meat eaters or uh, at most omnivores. And so it suggests that many of what would later become plant-eating dinosaurs actually developed later in time. And so, once again, paleobiologists at the University of Bristol in England examined uh, CAT scans of the skulls of several dinosaur genera, including small bipedal Theocondatosaurus and long-napped Diplodocus and created a 3D model of their teeth. Both of these species have been considered herbivores. Teeth can give a good can give good clues about what an animal eats because they are our tools to break down food. Antonio Balel Mayoral, the study's lead author and a senior research associate in the School of Earth Science Sciences at the University of Bristol, uh, told Live Science. As such, it's expected that different tooth shapes will be efficient at processing different kinds of food items. In dinosaurs, we see an impressive diversity of tooth types, including blade-like, conical, triangular, leaf-shaped, etc. This is an indication that dinosaurs evolved different feeding habits and specialized in a wide range of diets. Increasingly, many of these different kinds of tooth shapes were already present in the earliest dinosaurs, suggesting they might have been quite diverse. And so the team compared the shape and function of dinosaur teeth to those of living reptiles, including monitor lizards, skinks, geckos, snakes, and crocodiles. Our knowledge of the relationship between tooth shape and diet is based on information from living species, Balel Mayoral said. For instance, sharp and curved teeth are better at piercing and cutting soft food items like meat, and they are typical of carnivores. 
On the other hand, straight teeth with tentacles or serrations are more efficient at breaking down tougher items like some plants and insect exoskeletons, and they're present in herbivores and insectivores. Now, the researchers point out that prior work mostly focused on qualitative comparisons with the dentition of living analogs and that their research used machine learning algorithms for a quantitative analysis. And so the researchers found that early serrations or lizard-hipped dinosaurs, including Hererosaurus and Eodromaeus, a basal theropod, as well as sauropodomorphs, Buriolestes, and Eoraptor, all show signs of having the mechanically weakest teeth, indicating a diet of flesh and have teeth that resemble Komodo dragons. Early ornithischians, or bird-hipped dinosaurs, including Lesothosaurus, Saturnalia, I have been doing so good, (laughs) and Platyosaurin sauromatoporphs, show more mechanically resistant teeth that may have been better at breaking down plant material and insect exoskeletons. The researchers write, Our study is the first to recover quantitative morphofunctional evidence for the notable for the notable dietary diversity in the earliest dinosaurs. Early serrations slash theropods are classified as carnivores, um, as carnivores, sauropodomorphs evolved diverse feeding habitats from ancestral carni- carnivory, and omnivory might have been the dietary condition of the earliest ornithischians. These findings suggest that oblate herbivory was acquired late in the evolution of sauromatoporphs, sauropodomorphs, <laughs> and ornithischians, it was not associated with the early divergence of dinosaur clades. We propose that this diversity of diets might have been a key contributor to the evolutionary success of dinosaurs through the late Triassic and early Jurassic. And so this suggests that the early relatives of Diplodocus and other long-necked dinosaurs transitioned from carnivory to herbivory during the Triassic period, whereas the early reptile, early relatives of Triceratops and the duck-billed dinosaurs later in history were derived from ancestors who were omnivores. So that's really fascinating. And so one of the other reasons for their diversity, uh, there have been other sort of ideas about how they were able to proliferate. So easily. And some of those include uh, their ability to basically grow really fast, um, to develop very fast, and also just their ability to kind of uh, be able to move into all of these different kinds of niches. And uh, part of that is probably definitely because of this uh, ability to have uh, tooth morphology that was diverse and that allows you to be really quickly able to uh, change your diet and be able to eat new things 
And so as climate changes, which we all know that it does, uh, you know, these dinosaurs were able to continually develop new uh, ways to be able to survive. Um, because again, dinosaurs survived for millions of years. Um, and so uh, I forget, I always forget to look this up beforehand, uh, before I'm talking about dinosaurs. I apologize. Um, but the idea is that uh, humans are more closely related to, or closer in time to uh, Tyrannosaurus rex than Tyrannosaurus rex is to, I believe, Stegosaurus. Um, and so if you think about that, it's just kind of mind-blowing. And um, uh, there's a really great visual, which of course I can't show you, uh, unfortunately, but I have um, a printed out geologic time scale. And uh, you can see that humans are basically a a pencil uh, marks worth of this four column uh, diagram and dinosaurs uh, lived for like a full one and a half, if not fully two uh, columns of the geologic timescale. Um, and so, yeah, they were stupendously successful and, um, it's a shame that they didn't uh, continue to make it. Uh, one of the stories that I might talk about later that I didn't get to tonight is that um, there is evidence that there was actually a second impact crater uh, from right around the time of the Chicxulub um, crater. And so, uh, yeah, they just, they got what might have been a real one-two punch uh, and of course, there were also other things that were going on, the Deccan traps, uh, huge volcanic eruptions in Central Asia, uh, you know, climate change, uh, disease, uh, the breakup of Pangaea, all of these things had to do with, um, you know, all of these things had various uh, impacts. But the one of the biggest impacts was obviously these humongous uh asteroids and um <laughs> it kind of makes you worry that you know those things keep coming you cannot uh, avoid major asteroid strikes uh unless we actually get our act together um i mean we do have a proof of concept now uh nasa did manage to change the trajectory of an asteroid which is super amazing and awesome um, but yeah, I think we still have a ways to go before we can prevent that kind of thing. Um, but I, I have faith. We'll, we'll be okay. Um, <laughs> and on that note, uh, I think that I will sign off. Uh, have a good night. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.